All right, I enjoy that song. Thank you for singing so well. Uh, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 today. We're going to continue our series in Genesis, and we're going to take care of the second half of the chapter. It's a blessing every week, uh, as long as the Lord tarries, to be in the Word of God, the sacred scripture, and to uh, trust God and to see what He has for us each week in His Word. This week we're going to be looking at Genesis 15, uh, verses 7 through 21 together. And uh, before I read that, once you get there, let me go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for His grace and strength for us to pay close attention to His Word. Uh, let's pray together. Father, as I was just reflecting on that song and singing it, I rejoice that all of our ways are known to you. All of them, every single one. And Lord, there's no path that you put us on, uh, Lord, that is a detour. That is something that you did not sovereignly plan for us. Lord, may we know the peace that is described in that song today as we consider what you're doing in our lives. Lord, as I preach your holy word today, I pray that you would remove distractions. I pr pray that you would bring encouragement through your word. And I pray, Lord, that we might have the grace to trust and believe what your, what your word says. Lord, help me as a preacher to proclaim your word clearly. Help each listener, each listener to be engaged in a pursuit of you in your word in this next half hour. I thank you for this time you give to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would honor yourself through your word. Use it through your spirit to change our lives, to encourage and strengthen us as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to Genesis chapter 15, I remind you a little bit of where we have been in Genesis 14 and the first part of this chapter. After Abram ambushed four wicked foreign kings, God decides to speak to him. More specifically, God gives Abram two parallel reassurances in verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 15 and in Genesis 15 verses 7 through 21. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, God's original promises to Abram involved three things, land, seed, and blessing. Okay, so if you're trying to remember the Abrahamic covenant and those original promises, those three things ring true. God promises land, seed, and blessing. And in Genesis chapter 15, just three chapters later, what God does is he confirms the first two of those three promises. So last week, we looked at God's reassurance regarding seed, or a son, and future descendants in verses 1 through 6. Although God had promised Abram many descendants, uh, Abram admits near the beginning of chapter 15, his uh, struggling with how this could happen since he did not yet have a son. 
And so what God does is he reminds him that he is Abram's shield and his very great reward. Perhaps you remember that focus last week. It was such encouragement to me throughout the week. It just keeps going. It's just still encouragement. God was his shield and his very great reward. After saying that, God invites Abram to go out under the dark skies in the country and to count the stars on a dark night. And then he says, so shall thy seed be. He explains to Abram that he's going to have as many descendants as there are stars in a starry night. And so Abram believes God and God counts it to him as righteousness. Abram has nothing more than the reassurance of God, yet he believes God and God credits it to him as righteousness. In that text last week, I told you that I thought God was asking you to weigh two things in a balance, your own problems and circumstances and God's mighty power. And you're to ask yourself when considering those two things, which one of these is more significant? And the answer comes from the life of Abraham. God's mighty power is greater than any of our physical circumstances, difficulties, or trials. Now this week, we're going to consider what God has to say about the land promises in verses 7 through 21 in the second half of this chapter. You can see an emphasis on land. I won't take the time to point them all out, but as we read through the scripture, as this sermon unfolds, I invite you to look for them. You can look for all the different times that the word land appears. It's found four times in the second half of this text. It becomes really obvious that this is God's emphasis in verses 7 through 21. He's going to reaffirm his promise of land. Now, one important feature of the text in verses 7 through 21 that stuck out to me as I studied it early this week was uh, all of the different times that God speaks. Matter of fact, most of the content of this text, most of the verses come in the form of divine address. More specifically, there are four divine speeches in this little section, verses 7 through 21. So it's almost all about that. And so our task today will be to consider what God says about the land and to learn how this should inform our view of God. So I want to start with you in verses 7 and 8 where we see God's opening statement and Abram's initial response. Look at verse 7. And he, that's God, said to him, that's Abram. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? At the beginning of this section, God simply states that he's going to give Abram the land that he is on to possess. And although most of this text will be about God, it's interesting to me at the beginning to see how Abram initially responds. What's his first impulse in this, uh, this uh, situation here? And uh, when I look at Abram's response, I noticed it's parallel to the way he responded earlier to God's promises about a seed. And I want to point this out to you. Look, look up in your Bible at verse 1 in the middle of that verse. 
So God says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. So God initiates it with this statement. But notice what Abram does. But Abram said, or he asked, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? Verse 2. Now look in verse 7. God initiates again in verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans who give you this land. And then look at verse 8. But Abram said, O Lord God, how? How am I to know that I shall possess it? And so as you're studying these texts in both of them, Abram responds in the same way. He starts with the same words, actually. O Lord God. In Hebrew, Adonai Yahweh. It seems to me, though, that these words are more than simply an address or an, a title for God, but they are the language of a personal appeal to God. I actually really like the ESV translation into English, O Lord God. This is Abram's way of addressing God in his time of need. Do you have a way of addressing God in your time of need? I started thinking about this this week, and uh, I realized that, um, I don't know if it's habit or pattern or what, but I think I refer to God in the same way every, every time I'm in need. When I'm experiencing difficulty, I say under my breath in a low but urgent tone, Oh Lord, oh Lord, when I'm on my bed, oh Lord. When I'm on my knees in prayer, oh Lord. When I'm at my desk considering some difficulty with a, maybe a family in the church or some loss that someone has experienced, I go to him and I say, oh Lord. When I'm in my car driving down the road, I have a moment to finally reflect about the day. I go to him and say, oh Lord, what about you? Do you have a way of addressing your appeal to God? Abram did. He said, Adonai Yahweh. O Lord God. And after that reverent appeal to God, that address to him, he starts with a question in both texts. Verse 2, how? Verse 3, or verse 8, what? In this text, some people believe that these questions reveal unbelief in Abram, but that is not consistent with the rest of the passage. For instance, if you look in verse 6, it, there, there you learn that Abram's rewarded for its great faith in God. Instead, I think Abram is simply revealing what's on his heart. And he's asking God legitimate questions about what and how God is working. So in verses 7 and 8, you have this opening declaration from God, and you have Abram being real with God and asking him uh, how this is going to happen. And he asks him if he would possess the land that God had promised. Now to answer Abram's question, God has more to say in verses 9 through 11. I want you to keep reading in your text there. Look down in verse 9. He said to him, God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. 
And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Uh, Now, this is where the story begins uh, to be a bit strange or mysterious for us as modern readers. Here, God instructs Abram to bring animals to him so that he can initiate a covenant about the land promises that he had given to him. Not only did God make a promise to him, now he is going to make a covenant with him. And so Abram obeys. He gets these animals that God wants him to have and these birds. And he splits most of the animals in two, putting them in two lines separated with a physical distance between the two parts of each one of the carcasses. Again, this is strange language for us today. If I were to do something like this in the field today, I'm sure we would have all kinds of national or or at least local media attention on this. But he does this, he spreads this out. But to an ancient reader, this would be something that uh, they would fully understand. To an ancient reader, this was a normal practice of cutting a covenant. In fact, the word for covenant means literally to cut a covenant. And it speaks of the, the dividing of sacrificial animals that would be a part of the binding oath and covenant. And so here, by dividing these animals in two parts, he was forming kind of a passageway for the covenant partners uh, to traverse between them. And in so doing, uh, these covenant partners would be making a vow, a vow that they would fulfill the, the terms of the covenant. And if they didn't, the wrongdoer should face a fate like one of these animals. So if, if, if I fail, then may someone dismember me like these animals. <laughs> and, and then the text grows even more mysterious uh, when you get down to verse 11. Right? As you're reading along this text, Abram does this. He separates these carcasses. He puts them across the field. And then it says that birds of prey came down on the carcasses and Abram has to drive them away. So he fends off scavengers here who would eat these dead animals. This is an intriguing part of the text to me. I spent much time on this this week. These scavengers, I think, add to the suspense of the story and what God is doing with his covenant. And they present Abram quite the challenge. I mean, can you imagine this? Spends all day dismembering these animals and spreading them out. And then all of a sudden, birds come out of nowhere and start attacking these carcasses. He's just trying to obey God. And out of nowhere come these birds. I'm sure Abram is tired at this point. He's tired after finding and slaughtering and dividing these animals only to then face these scavenger birds. This twist in the story reminds us that so many things work against us when we try to simply obey God. Just for a moment, I would just make an application for you. I I don't know what scavengers have come into your life. Perhaps you have grown weary in doing good. From personal experience and from helping others, I'd say I think sometimes Satan's accusations against us can be just like these scavenger birds threatening our very hold on the promises and covenant of God. I think sometimes our own doubts and fears from within, our own struggles are like these scavengers that come and would threaten 
our relationship with God. Perhaps it's others' criticism of you. You're simply trying to obey God. He told you to put this, all this stuff out here, and that's what you're doing, and, and these birds are coming. May, may I say that if that is the case, you're not alone, brother or sister. This is what Abram faced, and this is what a multitude of faithful men and women have faced throughout the years. And all of this in the text sets us up for God's third speech in verses 12 through 16, where he's going to explain the nature of the land covenant that God will make with Abram. Look down at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Here in verse 12, we learn that Abram falls into a deep sleep and there's a dreadful and great darkness that he experiences. I think this is a, uh, a low point of the soul for Abram. He's weary. He's fought off these scavenger birds. And now he has a dreadful and great darkness fall on him. Now, in order to understand some of these things, one of the things uh, you need to know is the words deep sleep come from one word in the original in the Hebrew. And those two words, deep sleep, have been used one other time in the book of Genesis. And that text is Genesis chapter 2 and verse 21. And so in, in Genesis, when deep sleep comes upon someone, it's God causing deep sleep to come. In Genesis 2 and verse 21, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the first man, Adam, when he took out one of his ribs to form the woman. Here in our text, Abram's slumber is so significant, it's so deep, that great darkness and terrors fall on him. This is very interesting language here in the text. I would suggest that uh, the author Moses is making a point here. He does not want us to miss something. And that is that Abram is preparing for an encounter with the one God of creation, the almighty God. With that in mind, in God's speech to him then, he explains a few things to him. And I'll just summarize them for you. We just read them, but I'll, I'll summarize them briefly to you. The first thing God says to Abram is, or explains to him, is that Abram himself will not inherit the land, but that he'll live in harmony or peace until he dies at a good old age. Okay, so Abram asked if he would be a part of this, and there's a sense in which he will, but he himself personally will not. Abram will not possess the land himself, but his future descendants will. And in this way, Abram, I think, anticipates any child of God today who is waiting for God to fulfill his promises of deliverance and salvation for them. 
If you think about it, I think we're just like Abram. We are waiting, waiting for God to fulfill his promises to us, his promises of deliverance and salvation, and we live waiting for that fulfillment. And many of us won't likely achieve the fulfillment of those promises until we pass through the veil of death and meet our God. I'm going to say more about how we're like Abram at the end of the sermon. But here Abram himself will not inherit the land, but he'll live in peace to a good old age, and then he'll die. The second in this text, God also explains that Abram's immediate descendants will be afflicted in a foreign country for 400 years, but then will finally return to this land, having attained the wealth of their afflictor, of the nation of Egypt. And finally, in this text, God explains that Abram's immediate descendants won't get the promised land. And he he gives us this intriguing little point at the end of verse 16. They won't get it because God was forbearing with the current inhabitants of the land. Look at the end, or actually look at verse 16 again. It says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation because, or for, The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now that is a strange reason, right? Okay, your descendants, they're going to be driven away from here. They're going to have to go through slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They can't have the land now because the sin of the original dwellers of this land, the Amorites, or you could say the Canaanites, their sin is not yet complete. As we come to this strange language, I think it reveals to us a theological truth about God. And the point here is that God is a forbearing God. He suffers long until he reaches a limit with a people or a person. There comes a time when the full measure of one's sin brings God's judgment. Yet yet God's patience with these people and with others too in this world is far beyond any human calculation. And so I think this little statement at the end of verse 16, this little reason is important for those who will keep reading in their Bibles, for those who have come to the book of Joshua, for instance, and learn of the brutality and the destruction found in that book and will struggle struggle with the way the people of Israel treat the original inhabitants of the land. As a matter of fact, as you're reading, you read some modern commentators today, they really struggle with the brutality of Israel in their colonization of the promised land. They question, how could a righteous God do this to people? Yet what you need to understand, men and women, is that the Amorites, the Canaanites, represent here the original possessors of the land. And these people take full advantage of the patience or long-suffering of God to heap to themselves all kinds of selfish indulgences and pursuits. As a matter of fact, Moses comments on this later in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 18, in the first 24 verses, Moses reflects for a while on the sins of the Amorite people. He starts out in that chapter with the sin of incest that they had committed, and he gives 11 different variations of that sin that these Amorite people had committed. 
And then he moves on to the sin of adultery. And he talks about their child sacrifices that they performed. And then he moves on to the sin of homosexuality that these people had engaged in. And he finally closes with the the heinous sin of bestiality. Leviticus chapter 18, when he's describing the sin of the original inhabitants of the land. And then in verses 24 and 25, he closes his treatment of the sin of the Amorites by going and making an appeal to Israel. Verse 24, I just want to read this verse to you. It says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And so this end reason in our text, you cannot get the land yet, the full measure of their sin is not yet complete, reveals to us God's perfect timing. God's perfect timing is in accord with his long suffering of a people. Abram's descendants will endure affliction for 400 years until God is ready to punish the Amorite people. As we come to this part of the text, we might struggle with God's timing. But may I just say this to you, men and women, God's timing is perfection. It's perfection. It's impeccable. We can always trust that God knows what he's doing. Perhaps in your own struggles today, you're like the psalmist who asks God, how long? God, how long will the wicked prosper? Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Perhaps you resonate with the psalmist in Psalm 119 when he asks, How long must your servant endure? How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? What I say to you is that God's timing is perfect. He's got plans and providences that sometimes we don't even know about. His timing is perfection. It's impeccable. You can trust him with your life. And your challenges. He always knows what he's doing. Now all of this in Genesis 15 leads us to the final part of God's speech. In verses 17 through 21. Where God participates in this covenant himself. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark. Behold. A smoking fire pot. And a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Here in his last divine speech, God participates himself in giving a land grant to the descendants of Abram. 
Verse 17 uh, struck me as being an odd verse again, giving an odd picture. Here, if you're reading along, you know, Abram's, he's fought off all the scavenger birds. He's fallen to this deep and, this deep and dreadful sleep. And then the sun goes down and a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch goes right in between the pieces of the animals. <laughs> and again, as we as moderns hear this and read this, like, what in the world? Where did the fire pot, we were, you know, where did the birds of prey come? Where did this fire pot come from? And where is, what's this flaming torch thing passing through? But to Moses' original readers, I think they knew exactly, again, what is going on here. They're quite familiar with what this means. They knew that dividing up animals was a sign of cutting a new covenant. They also knew what Moses meant when he talks about a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Now to help you all understand this a bit better, I want to look at two other texts in the Pentateuch to help you understand what's this smoking fire pot and what's the flaming torch. So in, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Just flip over to Exodus 13. I want to read a few verses to you to help you see this. There are other passages in the Pentateuch that speak of smoking fire. And the meaning there of these things is quite obvious to us, more obvious than in our text. So we're going to take these texts and help, have them help us in ours. Turn to Exodus 13 and verse 21. Verse 21, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. I think the mention of fire here can help us a little bit with what this flaming torch is. Here there is a, a pillar of fire guiding them throughout the evening. God appears in a fiery pillar to lead the Israelites through the wilderness. In this text in Exodus 13, we have a miraculous demonstration of the presence and the guidance of God for the Israelite people. God is revealing himself to his people, his direction for them by giving them this fiery pillar. Now, you're in Exodus 13. Turn over just a few more chapters to the other text, Exodus 19, which I think is an even clearer indication of what our smoking fire pot and the flaming torch might be. Look at Exodus 19 and verse 16. Exodus 19, 16. It says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast that all of the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. I'll skip down to chapter 20 and verse 1. And we know that this is when God gives them the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. But look at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. As we look at Exodus 19 and 20, I want you to stay here for a moment. I want you to look at that verse 2. 
And I'll reflect upon it with you for a moment. I just point out there's so many parallels between Exodus 19 and 20 and Genesis 15, the text we're looking at. In both texts, there's clouds and darkness, there's smoke and fire. This text, there's smoke, like smoke coming out of a great kiln. In our text, there's a smoking fire pot. Further, look at the phrase in 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, remember that. Well, actually, you look at verse 2 again, and I'll read Genesis 15, verse 7. Okay, you look at verse 2. I'm going to read Genesis 15. He says this, I am the Lord who brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans. What's interesting in both of these texts is their parallels. Genesis 15 anticipates God coming to Israel on Mount Sinai. Both of these texts, they're, they're parallel and they reveal a similar thing. What are they revealing? They're revealing a theophany, an appearance of God. Fire in the Pentateuch often is a symbol of the presence of God. So back in Genesis 15, what's actually happening here is God is passing through the animals himself. And he's granting to Abram an unconditional covenant. We know it's unconditional because normally with a covenant like this, the two parties, they both walk through the pieces of the animal. Not in this case. In this case, all that passes through is a flaming, uh, a smoking fire plot, pot and a flaming torch. God himself goes through. This is a gracious act of a loving God for Abram who gives Abram his word and his presence as an encouragement to him to make it through. Again, I'm struck here with how Abram's situation is parallel to ours. Abram does not get the land his immediate descendants won't even get it. It'll be 400 years later. What Abram gets is promises, reassurances about the future. And Abram must believe in the face of his own difficulties. This past week, we had a dear sister face her own difficulties that led to her death. If you're here yesterday, we celebrated the life of Ginger Howlett, one of our members who went home to be with the Lord on Wednesday. Ginger came to the end of her road. At the end of this life, she did not have health. She did not have physical victories. She did not have the object of her faith, but she had promises, promises of the future. And Ginger joined generations of the faithful throughout the last 2,000 years who have endured to the end in her experience or their experiences to obtain the promise of God. And now having finished her course, she enjoys the object of her faith, Jesus. Men and women, what do we have today sitting out in this field? We do not yet 
have the object of our faith, Jesus. But we have all the promises of God for a sure and steady future. Let's take heart together. Let's remind each other of these blessed promises in the Holy Scripture. Let's pray for one another. Let's push each other to finish strong and quietly trust in God to carry us through. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Every portion of it reveals to us more about who you are. Lord, as we think of this mysterious, this mysterious event in Abram's life where he was overwhelmed, where he faced scavengers, where he fell into a deep sleep and had sudden darkness come upon him. And we see how you steadied him with your promise and your covenant. Lord, we can't help but think of all of the different ways that you have pursued and loved us as well. Lord, thank you for your promises. I am mindful of the promises that you give to us and thankful for them. Lord, this morning I was reflecting upon your promise in Isaiah 41 and verse 10, where you say, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Lord, today in this field, we do not enjoy the object of our faith, but we have a sure and steady promise from you. Lord, keep us faithful. May we encourage each other with these promises in Scripture, and may we finish strong the race you've given to us as well. We thank you for all of this and pray that you'd bless as we close. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.